This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Fever In, Fever Out by Luscious Jackson, featuring special guest, singer, and bassist Jill Cunniff. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, as always, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay? Hey, Tim. So, we have an interesting show this week. This is probably, I don't know, after the Sundays, in terms of, you know, we review rock albums from the 90s, whether they're college or alternative or mainstream. This might have the least rockingest in terms of what you think of, which would be either loud guitars or heavy instrumentation. I don't know what that would be like. Really heavy would be like a tuba, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, mean, but uh, in physical weight, in physical weight, yes. <laughs> they use the lightest instruments possible. Yes, it's all played on recorder. Yes, exactly. We're getting into Luscious Jackson and their album from 1996, Fever In, Fever Out, and as a little bonus, lead singer Jill Cunniff is going to be joining us for an interview. Uh, that'll be uh, coming up a little bit later, but I wanted to I wanted to start this off with a, a discussion that we sort of touched on in various episodes, but we haven't really formed an episode around, which is how indie labels sort of made the 90s in a way. And what I mean by that is, and Jay, you can disagree or agree with me if you want. You know, in the in the 80s, you had like the rise of like the punk indie labels and and underground labels like Epitaph and Sub Pop and Discord, Homestead, SST, Twin Tone, those sorts of things, and they carried on in the 90s. And then in the 90s, 89, 90, you had the rise of like Matador and Merge, and Grand Royal started with the signing of Luscious Jackson. That was the first artist on the label, and I think that. And you, like I said, you can disagree with me that it's because of the indie labels, you know, bringing up these bands, these smaller bands, who in some instances went on to get signed by bigger ba- bigger labels. I'm thinking of like, you know, Soundgarden going to from Sub Pop to to A and M, a lot of bands going from Sub Pop to to bigger labels. That is that they were basically responsible for much of what we think of in terms of the '90s, all these '80s and '90s indie labels. Agree or disagree? Yeah, it was kind of like, uh, or th- didn't it happen kind of in the 50s, like when rock and roll first kind of broke big. There was like regional and small labels that would release yeah. singles, and then those would get essentially bought up by major labels, and they, they would go from there. It's sort of, um, the 90s version was a little bit like that. Um, I think some of it was a little bit, um, you know, manufactured. I think there was some you know, taking the mystique and the credibility of a, a small label, indie label name or creating what looked like a small or indie label, but it was really backed in some way or fashion by a major label. I think that was going on quite a bit. Um, but there's no doubt a lot of music released as a result of the, let's say, the marketability of the indie label concept and the bands that that represented. Um, which obviously kind of, you know, put its its roots in the ground during the 80s and really in the 90s, I think it was recognized that, you know, you could turn that into a business and make money from it. And that was exploited, I think, to the fullest extent, to the point where we're now, where all that collapsed. Obviously, you know, A&M went under, like we talked about before, and mm-hmm. many, many, many other labels, big and small, all collapsed under that. You know, we're sort of back where we were. Well, I, I think we're in a unique place. I think, you know, you got the biggest, you got a lot of consolidation, but now there's, um, you, you know, still some have cool stuff. You still have labels some, like Matador and Merge are still going mm-hmm. strong. Sub Pop still putting out records. It's like the, the labels that didn't, they signed distribution deals, but they didn't get bought out. Those labels seem to have done better. Well, Sub Pop got bought out at some point, didn't they? Or, or they sold. They sold. I think they, they got a huge investment from somebody. They, I think they got an investment, but I don't think it was that they basically became a farm team for a major label. Right. 
And it, basically, the, the point of that was just talking about Grand Royal was home to, obviously, the Beastie Boys. Uh, Jimmy Eat World put out an album. Ben Lee, Sean Lennon, At The Drive-In was on there. But then they also put out a lot of smaller bands that probably never would have been signed to a label ever. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of like the really obscure stuff like Brand Van 3000, Butter 08, and then Luscious Jackson. I don't know that Luscious Jackson would have ever signed to a Universal or a Sony Epic without being on Grand Royal. Not that they ever did, but I'm just saying that they no. probably would have ended up self-releasing rather than... I think it took the uh, the vision you know, what was of the guys from the Beastie Boys. And obviously they were, they're no, the ladies in this band, but it took their vision of like how you could make, you know, hip hop, soul, R&B flavored music and market it in a time when, to market it to a rock audience at a time when, you know, that was sort of a new concept. So I think a lot of major labels would have been totally confused at what the hell to do with that, you know, especially because it's not aggressive. It's not like Rage Against the Machine. Or it's like, okay, well, you know, this guy's rapping, but basically it's pretty heavy. So if we put them on a, you know, a metal station, I think we can get this to work. Whereas this wasn't like that at all. So I could, ima- I couldn't imagine many labels be understanding what to do with it. Well, we're talking about the Beastie Boys, and we're talking about Grand Royal, and we're talking about all this stuff. We should probably get to the history of the band. History of the band. Luscious Jackson formed in 1991 by Gabby Glasser and Jill Cuniff. They recruited Kate Schellenbach to play drums, who was formerly the Beastie Boys drummer from 1979 to 1984. They played their first show with the Beastie Boys and a band called Cypress Hill in a now condemned building in New York City. They were, as I mentioned, they were the first artist on Grand Royal, and they added uh, Vivian Trimble. Uh, In 1992, a year after forming, they released the In Search of Manny EP. 1994, the first album, Natural Ingredients, comes out. The band appears on Saturday Night Live and on a bunch of MTV shows like Viva Variety, House of Style, 120 Minutes. They played Lollapalooza. They were on the Clueless soundtrack. Their second album, Fever In, Fever Out, the one that we are reviewing, came out in 1996, produced by legendary producer Daniel Lenoir. In 98, the band appeared in a Gap ad. Uh, Vivian Trimble left the band, and she was replaced by Sing Birdsong. In 1999, their third album, Electric Honey, was released. Our Buffy the Vampire Slayer show featured a song from that album. Uh, in 2000, the band announced that they were touring no longer, and they were done recording in order to spend more time with their families. In 2006, there were plans to release a children's album. In 2007, Capitol Reco- Records released a Greatest Hits Jill released the solo album City Beach on the Militia Group label, and Gabby released the solo album Gimme Splash on the Latchkey record label. And last year, the band reunited and started working on a new record funded through the PledgeMusic.com website. We'll talk a little bit about that with Jill towards the end of the episode. We are now at the point where I need to say... Uh, I need to actually thank somebody before we move on to the Facebook feedback. And that somebody is Zach Moore. Zach donated to the podcast, Jay. He is uh, the the first official sponsor of the history of the band. Yes. Zach makes history on this episode. We want to thank Zach. This is a momentous occasion. We are signing a declaration that when this episode airs, it is national dig me out zach more day we 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 want everybody to say thank you to zach because zach just took care of i believe two percent of our total bill for operating this podcast uh for the year so and you might you know that's that'll make a difference better than zero percent it's better than zero percent 
So if you want to be uh, the sponsor of History of the Band, you know how to do it. Go to the website, open your checkbook. You too can get a big mention. I mean, just think of all the notoriety and the Twitter followers and the and the fame you'll have. The girls, money well spent. The drugs. <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. So let's go to Facebook feedback. Uh, we did get some feedback on this particular episode. David Gorgos. He simply said, "Oh hell yes!" when we mentioned. Uh, that we were going to be reviewing this record. He said he was working at a New York City record store. This was a huge album for us at the time. Um, and then he said, I wonder, did it not do well outside the region? I, I think it did. What does do well mean? In terms of, was it mostly a New York City or East Coast sort of supported band or record? I guess because we tend, this is this is probably one of the bigger records in terms of sales that we're reviewing. Um, and in what terms of not- notoriety, uh, I think it went platinum. What? Maybe gold. Get out of here. Yeah. It sold quite a bit. Where are you getting that information from? From my ass. Uh, <laughs> then also, Chip Midnight, our old our old friend Chip Midnight, chimed in. He wrote, uh, I think because of their connections to the Beastie Boys, they weren't marketed well at the beginning. When I first heard In Search of Manny, I was totally expecting something like Northern State, a female rap group that came years later. Once I understood that Luscious, Jack- Luscious Jackson wasn't supposed to be a female Beastie Boys, I enjoyed them much more. And then he goes on to talk about interviewing them because he interviewed everybody during the 1990s. Uh, you know, David's obviously excited that we're, we're doing this one. And I'm excited too because, and we'll get into, I'll get into what you think, Jay. But I want to start out with sort of a statement, a grandiose, over the top statement that you can agree or disagree with me with. Lay it out there. I think that Naked Eye, this is the first song on the album, it's the first single off the album, it's one of the defining moments of alternative music in the 1990s. And here's why I say that. Wah, wah, wee, wah, what? Yes, I know. You've got, you got some, you got some explaining to do. And when I say defining, I mean, it, it. you listen to it and you can get a snapshot picture of what the 1990s an aspect of what the 1990s were about. You've got hip-hop rhythms. You've got electronic and dance music uh, influences. You've got a pop structure. You've got a pop melody. Coinciding with the rise of the female artist alongside... This came out in 96. A year before, you've got albums from No Doubt. You've got albums from Garbage, Alanis Morissette. It encapsulates so much of the mid-90s outside of what we normally think of, which is grunge. That's the first thing that people think of in terms of the 90s. But grunge really only covers maybe like 91 to 94. You have this whole vacuum between, I don't want to say the death of Kurt Cobain, because that's not necessarily when everything stopped, but you had this rise of bands that weren't Seattle bands, but that were getting popular, 94, 95, up until, say, the 97, 98, when a lot of the alternative music sort of got crushed by either the Spice Girls or Korn or Creed. But this song, I feel like, encapsulates all that stuff that was going on. And it's just a really catchy, fun pop song. And it's counterintuitive to what people think because a lot of people think of the 90s as being dour, that you you couldn't have fun. It was Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. It was dark and pouty and... Everybody was wearing flannels. That's, and that's not what this song or this band was about. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I, I can get on board with that. Wearing nothing is divine. Naked is a state of mind. I take things off to clear my head to say the things I haven't said. Live inside the elements, the earth and sky are my best friends. Water is the evidence that washes me from end to end. Started to be 
I would very much say though that uh, you know this album shares a producer with Octoon Baby. Mm-hmm. I would say that that album for me really started some of the things that you hear on that song. You know, I think it's kind of the same formula. The only difference is probably, you know, there's a little less guitar, obviously, and there's, um, you know, a difference in vocal delivery. But just in terms of the textures and the, you know, the the intermingling of technology and acoustic instruments and and all those layers, um, I think is very much um, a Daniel Manoir sound. And I think it started on a Octune Baby a couple of years prior to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, this does incorporate hip-hop elements, you know, which you two never did, thank God. <laughs> uh, you know, and even I, I though think the, the I'm Edge not a was rapping. I think the Edge was oh, rapping right. on that one that's song right. off of Zeropa. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Oh, my God. <sighs> I forced that out of my brain. I know you did. I just pushed it back in. Oh, Sorry. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to be fair to the 90s, you know, that was a huge part of, you know, that, that convergence did end up being very, you know, very big towards the, the end of the decade and into the 2000s. So, um, like I said, these guys, these guys, these girls weren't uh, using, uh, you know, heavy guitars to translate that and in, in, in volume necessarily. Really, what they made them uh, unique in that uh, convergence. So would, I, I could get on board with where you're going with that. This would be a good time to go to our interview and talk a little bit about what Daniel Lenoir brought to this album. So this was like '95. Okay. And our first two releases were. Um, very like strong on the loops and samples. So right. Um, so we were talking about producers and listening to reels, and nothing was like popping for us. And then um, Dan was speaking to someone at our label, president of the label at the time, and um, he said he listened. Demon was in between projects. He really liked um, likes your music, and I guess his sister had given him um, "In Search of Manny," our first release. Um, and then we met with him and he's such a cool guy that it was like immediate, you know? Um, and that's where it came from. It came from a, 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 you know, a label connection. Um, and you know, he, he is somebody who picks stuff he likes. So it was quite an honor and he's definitely not somebody who does a lot of super commercial work. Um, so he brought this whole other angle with his production techniques and, and we got to go to New Orleans to Kingsway, which is a highlight of my whole recording career and all of us. It's like a, it was a big mansion that he bought and sort of decorated and every room had a different motif. You know, every bedroom oh. had a different motif and like the tile, walls were tiled. And it's one of these situations where um, it was like nobody was living there and it wasn't like, oh, this is so fancy. It was just super cool mm-hmm. and like really vibey. Um, and, you know, I'd say for us, it was just, a, it was really unique to go and live in this big house. It almost felt like a haunted house, you know, and, and all full of antiques and then set up all this equipment in the main area, the main rooms, um, and have great people around. And it, it was just spectacular in this, in this artistic way. Um, and I think, you know, then we came back to New York and did more with him. It's a highlight for all of us. Like when we look back on everything working with him and he's he's like a real song and vocal guy so i think before that the vocals were kind of getting buried and he just was like it's all about the vocal 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 has to be a great vocal and and it has to be a great song and he would just write down all these stuff every every details about each song we were recording and like star something you know he did the producer's job Mm -hmm. and and i think when you're in a band you, you sometimes you can't tell your best stuff (laughs) <laughs> like the right. person sitting in the chair in the room is like, oh, I can tell this is the best one, and this is the best one. So did he have and, a, a a sort of a hand in picking, not necessarily picking songs, but saying, hey, I, I like where this one's going? Or were you yes, guys yes. like, did you know when, when you went in the studio, we've got X number of tracks, this is what we're taking in, or did you say we have ideas for certain songs and we need them to be sort of shaped in the studio? Um, well, we thought we had all our songs. We thought we had most of our songs. Okay. And we soon found out we didn't. And um, 
it was sort of the first time we worked as a live band and it was not as concrete, was it not as successful in many ways as like when we went off and wrote in different fashions. So like a few of the songs really worked and then they, we ended up, some of them ended up being back on loops. Um, so the, the record as a whole ended up being a, a mixture of live and sort of what we'd always done, which is like loops and bits of samples. By then you couldn't really use samples, but, but like, mm-hmm. Just a, I'm going to say loops because it's, it's different than jamming in a room, um, but writing with loops and having writing with tapes or drummers loops and more of a collage method, you know, which is basically how we, that's our best method we found out. And uh, that that was pretty cool to have some of those Dan Lenoir live tracks on there. Like when I listen to them now, they have this really bassy, warm vibe to them. You know? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned him being so focused on the vocals because one of the things that I think is his trademark is the drum sound that Octune Baby and uh, Peter Gabriel, those have very distinct uh-huh. drum sounds and you can hear it on your record as well. Do you, do you know what his magic is when he gets in the studio with regards to drums? Because you hear Daniel, Daniel. Lenoir. Nope, I don't. Isn't that okay. funny? I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> it, I have no idea. I, it's probably a mixture of specific mics and um, location of mics. Like, you know, he, he there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room sound in, in, in drums I like, especially. And I think the drums we all like compared to like not room sound. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like exactly. That's, it's, it sounds as if there's space in the room where the drums are being played, but they're still very crystal clear. They don't sound distant where they would sound like muddy or tin canny. Mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. they're very crystal clear when you're hearing them but there's still this sense of like space around them as opposed to something that's really dry without any reverb or anything like that yeah i think it's it's i wasn't really focused on that to be honest and and uh he just packs his magic bag of tricks and tools (laughs) you know he brings around he had some great stuff he had like a sub bass pedal he brought in which is like this you play through it and it creates all this sub bass like you put a guitar bass through it you can hear it on, um, I think it's on Faith, and it's possibly on Naked Eye. So, like, suddenly you'll hear this, this sound come in, and it's like, Brrr. Okay, I know what you're talking that about, especially cool. in Naked yeah. Eye. I think it happens yeah. in, like, the second verse. Yeah, it suddenly comes in, and it's like, yes. what is that? And it, it's also on Faith, like, something on Faith. It might be his guitar. I don't remember. It's something. He's got he's got it on a couple tracks and it's, that was a very cool pedal. He's like Excellent. a pedal pedals and mics guy, you know. What, did you write mostly on bass or was that? No, did, no, no. My guitar okay. guitar is my instrument and okay. I play bass well, but I write on guitar. I write over track. I make tracks. Um, Gabby and I right now are, are primarily the people making the album. Kate is in LA, so she's coming in. But we've we've really been doing it collage style where we send her something or she sends us something and, you know, eventually we're going to have to all get together and jam and be a band. Do you have but, a, uh, a guitar of preference? Um, it's funny. <laughs> I've been writing a lot on the Fender Mustang and the, I have a Les Paul, but, and acoustics, you know, are probably my primary. That's what I started writing on always a steel string acoustic. Okay. I have a Taylor, a nice Taylor. Ah, Taylor's nice. Small, yes. small, like a very small Mac, and like I, I worked hard to find that one too. A lot of them are really big. The Martins are really stiff to play, and the Taylor just like is so easy to play. Yeah. 
Jay, one of the things that I mentioned is the electronic elements that I hear going on on this album. Um, mm-hmm. Mood Swing, track four. I don't know if you, if you sort of picked up on this, but this had like a real like 50s and 60s sort of cocktail jazz feel to this song. And the band that I think of when I, in terms of modern era, when I think of that sound is like Stereo Lab. Can be, you know, very cocktail jazzy and then really abrasive pop um mm-hmm. with like buzzsaw guitars did you hear that sort of thing going on in here like this sort of like i don't know it, it was a weird like almost i don't want to say european because daniel I, I actually learned in reading about daniel lanois that he's not european i always assumed he was like <laughs> french french canadian right yeah he's canadian okay. i thought that maybe that's where that influence came from you know it's hard to say for sure but uh it's definitely it's in the songwriting, obviously, but also the way it's produced. Um, you know, it's a distant drum, um, kind of a small distant drum sound, and you know the bass tone, and it's very um, intimate in terms of the way that everything's mic'd and the, the sort of the the room feel that it gives. It also reminded me a little bit of Fiona Apple, which is interesting because that her first album came out the same year. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's some differences in the in the vocal delivery but even in the way that she um you know she sort of uh forces lyrics a little bit and gets a little wordy that can almost sound a little bit rapish so there's a little spoken wordy kind of rap delivery here and and i hear a similar thing with you know fiona apple and it still has you know and some a lot of her music has that dark loungy kind of jazzy kind of under you know, uh, undercurrent to it. Cool, cool, deep blues. You're the shine on my shoes. Is it in the damp heat inside of me, or is it in the fire that we collide? I feed you mood swing, but you're never satisfied. Is it in the damp heat inside of me, or is it in the fire that we collide? I feed you. I was sort of surprised. I, I my familiarity with the band was more around the singles. So kind of in the album material, I was it was interesting to to reveal the the layers of the band like a song like that that I didn't really know existed. That being said, I mean I can't say it's a favorite song of mine from the album, but uh, it definitely showed me a different side and and really a musicianship. I mean the drums on that song are really well done. You know, it highlights the bass a lot. The bass lines on this album across the board are actually very, very good. Um, they're really yeah, that's, melodic. Uh, that's Jill really playing the bass. Rhythm oriented. You know, very, very well done. And they carry a lot of the songs too because um, you know, there's a lot of space in there for other instrumentation to happen. Um, so, you know, the bass has got to do a lot of heavy lifting. But I have a question for you. Okay. So you started us off by saying this is sort of a what would you refer to it a landmark 90s record I, I think it's a def, it's a def- something that embodies i don't think you would have thought of it then okay. but if you if you're listening now i think you it's something that embodies a very a broad swath of of what was going on in the mid 90s that wasn't relative to the beginning of the decade wasn't relevant to the end of the decade but just sort of like this middle portion where sure. the female artist as a as a force in pop music not just in terms of like teen pop but in terms of you know 20 something 30 something people who are listening to uh, you know the radio and this is something that would be played alongside you know any other band on alternative radio in the 90s whereas 
And the, one thing that I read, which was interesting, and I'll let you get to your question. Um, <laughs> thanks. Is that thanks to Lilith Fair, which they went on, they did go on to Lilith Fair in like 97. Yeah. There started to pop up these female oriented radio stations where they would mm-hmm. play like Sheryl Crow and Meredith Brooks and then Luscious Jackson and Jewel. All the female artists got shoved off of alternative radio yeah. because they sort of got ghettoized onto these female oriented stations and then that all went away with the consolidation of, you know, Clear Channel eating up a bunch of radio stations and whatnot. So now I have two questions. So my okay. original question was going to be, but is it a bad thing now going back and listening to it that it is, it's really, I mean, to me, it's really time stamped as a mid nineties record. It's very difficult to listen to this and not hear the mid nineties. Um, most of it is not um, timeless. And that, that aspect of it, I kind of struggled with just, you know what I mean? Just, it's so indicative of the, the production style, the, the sounds, the, even the convergence of, of styles together. It just, uh, it just reminds me of that time so much and just speaks so much of that time and sounds so much like that time that it's becomes a little bit difficult. You know, there's been some other records we've done that came out around the same period and we found a couple here and there where it's like, you know, this sounds just as good now as it would have been then. Like, I, I really don't even know when it came out. And I think that's, you can't really say that about this record. And I guess for me, that's sort of a, a bad thing, but you're saying that you didn't mind that or... No, and I actually think that that's... That? I think if you made this album now, it would sound completely different because of the way that you work with digital recording technology in the way that you would be mixing it for a pair of earbuds as opposed to a regular stereo. I think that the drums would sound completely different. I think it'd be a lot busier sounding. I think the vocals would be auto-tuned. I think it would... I I think that it does sound very 90s in the same way that the Beastie Boys sound very 90s. Mm. Like, you're never going to get what the Beastie Boys did ever again. Mm. And, yeah, that sort of time stamps it for that period. I don't think that the sound is necessarily degraded or... Like, if you listen to, say, a mid-80s British, you know, recording that has those really tinny drums, you go, okay, Mm -hmm. that sounds like a a British album from the the 80s, but it also doesn't just... It just doesn't sound good. Yeah. I don't think anything on here sounds bad, and I think it actually sounds really good, but it definitely has a vibe of mid-90s. Right. So I think there's a difference between like the vibe of the album versus what the actual recording sounds like. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's competently produced. Uh, there, I have some issues with the vocals at times are sound kind of weird and it gets a little bit like kind of, uh, you know, a little mid-rangey and flat from time to time. And some of that is just like, because I think they're, there's so much going on rhythmically with the bass and the percussion and even mixing in the electronic and acoustic drums and all that, the sort of that middle area starts to get a little cloudy. But I mean, it's it's it it's not like you listen, like you said, it's not like one of those records uh, that we've reviewed that are that are from you know sort of the early '90s, either shoegaze or Britpop or whatever, where it's just it's just produced horribly to the point where it really makes it difficult to uh, appreciate the music. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely two different perspectives on that. The other point I wanted to make was uh, you were talking about. And we've touched on this before. It's an interesting subject, I think. I'd love to hear more points of view on this. Um, you know, this does really represent the the time in the mid-90s, like you said, where females really, you know, came out and were. it felt like they were no longer just, like, the token in the band or something or, like, they weren't referred to as, like, the girl band. They were just a band. There was like this, t- you know, there were so many women playing at rock bands and alternative and indie bands during sort of the mid nineties that it just became very commonplace. Mm-hmm. And that's totally gone away. It's, it's amazing. Cause I remember at the time I was like, okay, this is really cool. We're kind of at the point where it's no longer like they're a female fronted band or, you know what I mean? You don't define bands by like right. if there's girls in them or not, which seemed you know, ridiculous. We sort of got to that point where there's so many female artists in rock and had 
tons of hits and he said there was tours around them and they started building radio stations around it which is maybe the one of the problems but it's just incredible to me that that sort of I think for all intents and purposes kind of died and it went back to being marginalized where now females again are just considered either pop artists or country you know you have a couple members of some alternative bands but for the most part I don't know I just feel maybe I'm out of touch with my current music but to me it just does not seem like that really paid itself off the way that I think at least I expected it to no I, I think you're right in terms of the female band in this case Les Jackson but there were other instances being basically like it didn't matter that it was a female band it was just a band right and now you've got your pop you've got your lady gaga and your your katy perry and kesha and that sort of stuff right. and then you have like you said your country artists and then you have basically like kind of indie bands that have when it like you know sleigh bells has a female singer um you have some indie yeah, bands but they're all un- kind of underground and the major artists uh, you know when was the last time show crow put out a, rec- a relevant record when was the last time bjork right. put out a relevant record uh, liz fair any of those artists who were from the 90s who seemed like a lot more set sarah mclaughlin yeah all of them yeah, I, and they and it, they didn't that didn't translate into a new generation of artists picking up the torch and and doing that. You have you know like what's her name Haley Williams fronting Paramore, but again that's just somebody that's right. that's a you know that's like in the same way that like Gwen Stefani fronted No Doubt. Like it's not right. exactly the same thing that we're talking about. No. Yeah, it's a little disappointing because I you know like you I enjoyed you know what was going on in terms of the shakeup. Yeah. And the fact that that didn't, that sort of got killed. And, and unfortunately, part of it was just the success killed itself. And that they decided to go with separate tours and separate, you know, radio stations and separate everything, which made yeah, sense it, it to maximize just, those. It's, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, they intended to, uh, yeah, like you said, maximize that. But in a way, it like segregated all of those artists and then when those uh channels ceased to you know make sense as a business then all of those artists died with them right. you know <laughs> it's sort of like they pushed them out the islands and then when the islands could no longer get food everybody on the island died <laughs> it's like whoops sorry sorry we sent you that island anyway let's pick up and start again yeah there's a lot of indie bands that have female singers right now there's very few that have female guitar players or drummers for some reason, bass seems to still be like the the token position that guys still try to find girls to do. But yeah, like Silver Sun pickups. You know, it's always like the singer and maybe the bass player. And it's just so cool that this band is very confident musicians. You know, on every instrument, and it becomes other than the sort of the lyrical direction and the vocal. It all you know, it just it kind of becomes irrelevant that it's females. You know what I mean? They kind of don't make that. It's not apparent in any way when you listen to the music other than, you know, some of the lyrical references, obviously, in the female vocal. But you would never know that the the bass or the guitar, there's no difference, which is the whole point. It just seems like, uh, I don't know, girls stop picking up instruments or something. <laughs> it seems like we made so much momentum there and then all of a sudden it just, it just went away, which is disappointing. You mentioned the lyrics. Uh, one thing that we talked about when we were prepping... Uh, the interview was Marvin Gaye and his sort of, I don't know, I, I want to say his influence, but there are definitely references both musically and lyrically to Marvin Gaye. You had mentioned, I think, in what, what track was it at the beginning? Was it Don't Look Back? Track, yeah, track two, Don't Look Back. That there was a definite like Marvin Gaye vibe to that song. And then in, in track 11, uh, one thing, there's actually a lyric that goes, everybody, everybody's trying to... Make that make a dollar made Marvin scream made him want to holler. Right. That's a clear reference, obviously, to to Marvin Gaye. So, right. Right. so I asked uh, Jill, what was the influence of of Marvin Gaye? And um, well, we definitely listen to a lot of that stuff. Um, some people think it's our it's their some for some people it's their favorite thing that we do. 
Um, and I think we we were like a, a we're just a giant hodgepodge of sound. So, you know, we'll have like this this seventy soul organ popping in and, and we prefer old sounds in general. Um and we're you know, now we're making a new record and we still have our same array of influences. It hasn't like particularly changed. Mm-hmm. Which is really it's really fun and, and there's definitely a soul, you know, we just spent hours and hours it's just basically stuff we love. Like what do we spend hours and hours listening to? You know, Marvin Gaye. Right. <laughs> and like Stevie Wonder and like so you know, we're gonna put like that's what we put in. We we didn't have like any type of limits on our palette, I guess. We always just put in the stuff we like. It wasn't like any minimalism going on. So one of the really important aspects of that era of music is the rhythm section. I mean, that drives uh-huh. a lot of those songs. And you're the bass player, correct? Right. <laughs> It, so where did your bass influences come from in, in developing them for, you know, when you were growing um, up and then also when you were playing in the band? Well, I definitely had a, I had a bass made. Um, actually, I did a contest and it was like a bass player magazine contest. And this guy made me a bass, Jack Reed. He's no longer a luthier. But my requests were for, to make it like a dub, to get that dub sound. Okay. Um, and I also really liked... Um, the Motown bassist James Jamerson, mm-hmm. is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, when I started really becoming interested in bass, as you know, I kind of just played the bass because I could in the beginning. I mean, I've always liked bass, but I could play it, so I did. And then I sort of became really interested in it and started thinking about who who's the coolest bass players. You know, Slime Robbie, Rhythm Section, Motown, Paul McCartney. You know, there's just like Bootsy I Collins. love to play those those high Bootsy Collins. I was never a funk bass player, like slap funk. I never, that wasn't my thing. Okay. Um, but but um, definitely like the high notes on the Beatles, like when he made those really melodic bass lines. Mm-hmm. That's a big influence. And like the James Jamerson, I w- I wish I could play more like him. I tend to write pieces more than like he used to just throw all this stuff in that was like, oh my god. You know, like I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> But I definitely like what he does to the song, you know? Are you a finger player or a pick player? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do both. Because we play punk songs, too. I mean, like, our our set has a lot of, like, rock and punk songs in it. And it has, like, such an array of sounds. So it's something that, you know, I would switch up between the pick and the no pick. and. You need the attack with the pick. Yeah. For punk songs, it doesn't work with finger and yeah. for me, at least, I've never seen anyone do it really well. Something that I picked up on, I heard a little bit of weird, like French, fifties and sixties cocktail jazz and pop, uh-huh. like, like the way that Stereo Lab kind of does it every yep. once in a while. Yep. How, am I? So I'm not off base there with you. No, that we on? had a our a Vivian Trimble, who was in our band, brought that. That was her thing. She grew up in France, and that was what she brought. So sort of like you're going to hear that all over Fever and Fever Out. It's um, Soissons Neuf. She sings that one, which was a release that we did separately. It's mm-hmm. a Serge Gainsbourg song. She sings it in French. So you're not imagining it. Okay. Because <laughs> I had just been listening to something we both like. And, and actually, the co-stars was an album I made with her right. in 95. And that has like this French Bobby Gentry country kitsch kind of pretty song vibe. And there you go. That's okay. Good. I, I, I've been listening to Stereo Lab recently, catching up. I it was it was a you know everybody missed bands at some point in their life, and then they go back and like oh read you know discover something that they yeah. missed. Stereo Lab is one of those bands where I've been like, man, they put out like thirty albums, and I never listened to any of them. And They're good. Go and, and and Claudine Langer, do you know her from this from like the sixties? She was like this actress. Um, well, Jane Birkin, who sang with Serge Gainsbourg, right? So she mm-hmm. had that real breathy French style of singing, and that that we definitely took from that. And then we we saw Claudine Langer singing, and she's oh my god, just check her out. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to Google check that. Check her out. <laughs> it's almost like this naive singing, you know? It's very very like yeah, I I like, like you know that kind of stuff. Uh, is that what they were um, imitating or doing on Mad Men? A couple of weeks ago, when oh, uh, probably, yeah, you can't you can't help but giggle when you hear it. <laughs> it's like, wow, 
It just brings back this time and place that's so far away to me when I hear some of that music, you know. So Jay, obviously with this album, it's not perfect. One of my issues with it is the back half of it gets a little too mellow. I think if you're in the right mood, it's it just flows along nicely. But mm-hmm. there were times, and I, I you know I prepped for the interview, so I listened to it quite a few times. There were times when I wasn't necessarily in the mood. I was just listening to it to sort of get ideas for questions and and yeah. make notes and stuff like that. And I found myself being like, oh, this another slow song. Yeah. Did you find that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There's pockets of, of when yeah, where it really just it gets too slow, and I I think that the they they struggle a little bit to to make that inter- interesting. You know, it takes it takes a lot of work to uh, play a slow song and not have it be boring. That that is very difficult. I think we've touched on that issue in the past, and uh, you know, they're not always successful at it. Um, they do you know, make attempts to mix in some different instrumentation throughout, which helps keep you on your toes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's some some nice, um, you know, keyboard work mixed in there. I think there's a little bit of you know, vocal harmony going on, and I really wish there were more because when it, it does come in in a couple instances, it really um, perks up my ears at least and, and gets my attention and in a lot of cases, you know, kind of makes the chorus. Um, I just wish it was there more often, but I, I'm definitely way more attracted to uh, uh, songs like Naked Eye, Under Your Skin, you know, ones that you know have a have a faster tempo, have more going on in them. Um, they have then, a pulse. They have like a there's there's a yeah. forward momentum to them. In, in the vocal delivery style, you know, the sort of like taking rap influence and trying to do something with it, I think it works better in those songs. Um, it flows better. Mm-hmm. Um, she's sort of able to turn it into singing a little bit, which is pretty cool. And it becomes, you know, unique into them, which is nice. Um, there are a couple of slow songs though at the end that I, that I do like 12 and 13. So faith and stardust, which you mean 13 and 14, I'm sorry, 13, 14. What's cool about them is that they're, they're much darker to me sounding. Mm-hmm. They have almost a, uh, cinematic quality to them. Like I could see see them used in movies and stuff like I can you know you sort of there's one of those songs like as it's playing you sort of start seeing pictures in your head and scenes in your head and stuff and it also uh, the structure of them you know they're a little bit more um you know building tension adding instruments you know sort of opening up into a chorus there's just more going on there in terms of more dynamics yeah and it takes you on a journey you feel like I started somewhere, you know, I climbed to a top of the mountain and I kind of, you know, came down and at the end I felt like I went on a journey. And they're both both songs at the end of the album are like that. And I really like that quite a bit. I think the production style 
uh, really shines on those two songs too. So the the overall production on the record really, um, other than Naked Eye, which I think obviously is produced really well and Under Your Skin, I think those two in terms of the slow songs, for me, they come across and connect with me better than the others. So overall on this record, is this a worthy album, better EP or a decent single? Well, I think I'm going to be in the minority on this. I, I, I've starred five songs that, that I like mm-hmm. uh, from the record. So I, I, obviously that puts me in an EP. I think there's a couple on here, like you said, that I don't dislike them, but they're sort of just like, I don't turn them off. It's just, right. you know, I don't find myself saying like, oh, wow, that's awesome. It's just sort of like, oh, that's kind of nice. Okay. You know, and I don't really pay attention to it too much. Um, so, you know, I could probably throw a couple of those on to fill it out, but it's still, you know, talking seven songs. So I think I'm landing somewhere. I know I'm in the minority probably here, but I'm landing as an EP. Well, there are really 12 songs because there's two tracks that don't have, they're not music. There's door and parade. So there's really 12 songs. I went with, I actually liked about nine. So I give it, I think it's an album. There are a couple of songs that they're not, like you said, I don't dislike them. They just sort of like flow over mm-hmm. or flow past and I kind of go, oh, all right. The only the only thing I don't like that bugged me was I think you referred to it as the Waka Waka guitar on <laughs> Soothe Yourself. <laughs> I just didn't like the guitar tone yeah. on that on that song. Just sort yeah. of just bugged me. Well, it's funny because that song is also got the uh, like the 16th notes on the hi-hats. It's like... And when the Waka Waka guitar and there's like bongos or something, mm-hmm. it totally sounds like Chips Chase music. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like stereotypical, like 70s, either porno or Chips action TV show Chase music. <laughs> That's like, uh, are you being ironic or is it for real here? I, maybe I need some more time to appreciate that. Those are the kind of things where you're like, uh, I don't know. This isn't super original. So yeah, that was the only that was the only song that really kind of bugged me. Now Waka Waka guitar, Waka Waka guitar. Up front, when we were or when we were doing the history of the band, I talked about the new album uh, being released through Pledge Music, and I got a chance to ask Jill what exactly Pledge Music is, and and they have reached as of the recording of this episode. 206% of their targeted goal with 625 pledges. That's probably going to be even more when we actually put this episode out. So I wanted to find out what does that all mean for releasing the new record? It's, it's funny. It's, it's not exactly released through pledge music, although it right. appears to be that way. It's not a label. It does have a label, but I don't think ours is, ours is plugging. We're just going to do it ourselves. Um, so basically, it's a crowdsourcing site, and it's like Kickstarter, but it's very well-crafted for music, designed by musicians, and we offered a huge array of things from like hand-painted lyrics to downtown New York music walks to concerts to just regular CDs and signed CDs. I sold a bass. It was like, you know, you got something for your contribution, for sure. Um we're making, you know, a full album to be released hopefully by the summer, although we'll see. And basically people have, we spent like a few months reconnecting with our fans, like on Facebook and Twitter, trying to find them. Mm -hmm. And then in February we launched the drive and did some press. Um, and it's ongoing. So, you know, anybody can still go pledgemusic.com Luscious Jackson and contribute to the album and the reason it's great is you're not giving up any copyright to anyone else right so basically when we're done we owe our fans and our we are there are patrons whatever they pledged for and that's it and then we own the whole thing so it's like we're on that cusp right now where if you have a name and fans you can really be your own label so we've made enough to be our basically be our own label hire the people we want to hire, release the album, do some tour, you know, set up a business or a band within the framework that we wanted, how we want to do it. So it's been pretty amazing. 
and you've reached i think the last time i checked it was like 206 percent of your of your goal i'm really glad you looked because i haven't looked since um adam passed away and like i wrote something and i put it on facebook and i haven't gone back on facebook barely online (laughs) i was just like i couldn't even look you know right so that's nice to hear um and and basically we've only touched the, the, the what are they the tip of the iceberg i feel like with the fans and um the the warm feeling that it's brought to us can't be described you know it's like it, we people are writing and commenting we're we're doing updates twice a week of new song bits and like photos from the studio um little notes so so twice a week you know anyone who's pledged gets a little note from us and they get to hear new stuff and comment, you know, it's very interactive. Um, and it's it's pretty much a brand new thing. I mean, when it came along, a friend called me who, who was working on it and, and presented it. And I was like, well, you can't really, this is like a, a win-win. Like you can't lose with this unless you don't pass your goal at Kickstarter. You know, if you don't reach your goal, you get nothing. But there's no loss. Whereas every record deal till now has been a massive, you know, exchange like okay we're going to give you this money in exchange we own the you know copyright to your masters we own half if you half your publishing copyrights you know you give up a tremendous amount and uh and it's as everyone knows it's very hard to to recoup those deals so it's 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 a kind of an amazing thing and and we'll see where to how it develops in the next few years in terms of like younger artists utilizing these things too yeah, that's. I think that's the thing that people are most curious about in terms of, you know, Luscious Jackson has a name that goes back right. 20 years. Same thing with, you know, Radiohead being able to do their own albums and Nine Inch Nails. Right. For artists who aren't known, it seems like that's a much riskier avenue to take, although they're not really dealing with... And one of the things we talked about on the show is there were a plethora of indie labels and outlets, not outlets, but, um, you know bands are being snapped up by the dozens in the nineties where it's, it's the opposite now where there aren't as many labels, but there's way more avenues to get your music out. Exactly. You know I mean? It's, I feel like we're at this cusp. Like I said, like I actually have been working with young artists for the last 10 years as a writer and a producer. And most of them do not, nothing ever happens with them. It's been like, it's been really hard to watch. Um, people work really hard and it's like, I don't know if it was better before or worse, because back then there were sort of like scouts looking for things and trying to help people. I feel like there was a time when it was mutually beneficial for a lot of artists and their labels, and everybody was pretty happy, um, or at least you know money was being made and people were having careers and whatnot. And now it's just like everything's crumbling, you know, basically because nobody wants to buy music in the same way, I guess. And and so I guess the only thing I see, well, basically labels are having a hard time, right? We know that. They can, right. It's really hard to make money now. And um, you have to have a YouTube hit, you know, to get signed. And that may just be a novelty. And nobody has, you know, there's like one big YouTube sensation, right? Justin Bieber, maybe two. Rebecca Black people, might be there. <laughs> well, <You> might... <laughs> the thing is, I'm talking about like somebody who, got being on YouTube and transferred over to like a major label career. Gotcha. Right. Nobody will sign her cause she's too novelty ish, but like uh, Lana Del Rey came through that. So we'll see what happens to her. Um, there's a few, you know, and, and some of them are, some of them I'm like, I can't believe anyone signed this. Like this is insane. And some of them are good. And then some people are doing really well. Like, oh, I made a big YouTube sensation. I'm a YouTube sensation, and I'm not signing a label. I'm doing a Kickstarter. I'm doing, you know. So it might be wise for people to just hang in there and be like, I'm going to do a Kickstarter or a pledge. Okay, now I've got two or three million views and all these fans on 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 YouTube and big Facebook following, and like I can do I can do a, a pledge drive now and make eighty thousand dollars. Which, and own my entire project. So, you know, in a way, you could have like a smaller project and still make a good living and sort of be in control of it. So it's, it's like one of those moments where you go, mm, maybe this is a better choice for a young artist than just signing, going right on the label. So there's some thoughts. 
So the the last thing I guess as we're wrapping this up that I, I didn't get to bring this up up front, but I think it's a pertinent question now. Do you think that this could have been made anywhere other than New York City? No, it's like um, you know watching uh, the induction speech for the Beastie Boys into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think they made a uh, or made a comment to that effect too that their music embodied New York City. It's you know it could not have been made anywhere else, and it only existed because of New York City. And I think this is very much uh, the same. I'd actually be curious. To, to, and I haven't looked enough at their history to see if they have, but if they recorded outside of new york city ever and if they ever would and if they did how that would change the sound of the band you know if they ever did like a rent a house somewhere and what you know the desert <laughs> for two months and did a record like go out to joshua tree and drop some acid and make some music well you know whatever where's a uh, josh home record what's his studio called well i don't know what his studio is called but he's basically, out in the desert and basically in, do a, de- a yeah. desert sessions thing yeah drop peyote and <laughs> if that would affect you know the way they sound i w- i would imagine dropping peyote with josh home would probably <laughs> affect the way that your band sounds no matter who you are <laughs> that's true okay but for the better yes we need to wrap this up and we need is to say what dropping peyote is that even what you say i don't even is, know i, I don't even peyote. that's how square i am i don't even know I don't know either. Somebody leave a comment on that. Yeah. Tell us how exactly do you ingest peyote? You could let us know. We'd greatly appreciate it. Uh, We might even make you a sponsor. Yeah, that's it. I want to thank Jill for being gracious with her time and uh, talking to us about Fever In, Fever Out and their new record, which is TBA in terms of, or TB... uh, it says TBC actually on the website. I don't know what TBC means. I know what TBD and TBA means, but what's TBC? Who TB knows? Confirmed. I don't know. I don't know. Jay. Yeah. Thanks for uh, joining me on this episode. Do you know where people can go to leave us positive feedback? No, I don't. iTunes. Oh. Haven't you figured? Yeah, you that know out what. By now? I think I f- I'm trying to figure out the magic of how you get noticed on iTunes. I think it might be by getting reviews. So if we have, have any hope of being featured on iTunes, I think we're going to have to get some people to actually submit some reviews. So Yeah, people have been starring us. They've been giving us five stars, and we appreciate that. But if you could leave some words. Yeah, just write a comment in there. Like if you can't, seriously, if you can't do a donation or buy a T-shirt, I totally understand but it would help us a ton if you went on iTunes and just left a couple word comments. I think if we yeah. get enough of those, we could you know, get a feature off to the moon then. Then then it is big time for us. It is. It is big time. Yeah, who knows? We might get an, a real sponsor at that point. Yeah. We can stop then we can totally point. sell out. All right, that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to check back in next week for another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.